Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, Lord, and we we don't want to forget what a blessing and a privilege it is to come together and to worship you, Lord. Thank you for this house of meeting. Thank you for the people that have gathered here. Thank you for your provisions for us. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your son. Lord, I pray that you administer to the hearts of your people tonight. That you would break up the fallow ground, that your word would accomplish all that we need it to accomplish in our hearts, Lord. I pray that we would see you high and lifted up. And I pray, Lord, that we'd be humble before you. I pray for the brokenhearted here tonight, the bruised. Lord, you say that you are near to the brokenhearted. In a bruised reed you will not crush, in a smoking flax you will not quench. So revive us tonight, Lord, according to your word. Lift up our hearts as we lift up our eyes to see you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can you say hello to someone before you sit down? All right, everybody, come on in, have a seat. If you have your Bibles tonight, go ahead and take them out and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, while you're turning there, just a couple announcements. Tomorrow night, we are having prayer here at church, uh, intercessory prayer. It's going to be from 7 to 8. And uh, we're going to be doing that uh, every third Thursday of the month. And so we're getting back to that and just the realization of the need for the engine of the church to get revved up. And that's what Thursday night is. It's the engine of the church. So we want to have a big engine. And so encourage you guys to come out for that tomorrow night. And then a week from today, Wednesday, we're not having service on Wednesday night, the day before Thanksgiving. So take, take note of that. So chapter 15, we're almost finished. Almost finished with the book of 1 Corinthians. And the book of 1 Corinthians we have seen as a a book of a lot of corrections because this was a carnal church with carnal people. Carnal means fleshly. This was a church that had not surrendered their will to God and They were just doing their own thing. And the Bible says when we do our own thing, it's like not having a king reign over us when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It was a selfish church. It was a self-centered church. It was a greedy church. It was a competitive church, competitive with one another. It was a divisive church. But nonetheless, it was a church of born-again people who have received Christ. And so, as Paul is writing this letter to a people that he loved, he was there for 18 months establishing this church after he had preached the gospel, and he was grounding them in the things of God and the Word of God. But as he left, the things that he taught them also left. And so he's writing this to help them and correct them. But here's what's interesting. As we've been going through this book, we've seen this corrective nature of the book, and then we see the, these questions that are being answered because they had a lot of questions about things, things like marriage, about head coverings, about, um, about the taking the Lord's Supper and things like that. They had all these questions. But now we get into chapter 15, and we really find out what the root of the problem was. The root of the problem, the reason they were carnal, was a doctrinal problem. You see, doctrine 
will dictate how we live. Doctrine is just simply the teaching of the Bible. False doctrine will cause us to live a lie and fall into destruction. Sound doctrine will build us up in the things of God, strengthen us in the things of God, fill us with the love of Christ, the peace of Christ, the joy of Christ. We will be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. But this particular doctrine, we see where they were erring really brought about chaos in the church and it was a, a failure to understand what happens when we die. It was not having an eternal perspective. We've been talking on Sunday the last uh, few weeks about living from above down. Living with our hearts and minds set on the things above and seeking the things above, living our life in this world with the perspective of eternity. And that is crucial. And so in this chapter, the Apostle Paul goes back to this all-important issue of life after death and how that affects our life here now on earth. So take a look at what he says in Verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. So what is he doing? He's going right back to the beginning. Right back to where it started. Right back to where they met Jesus. To where they were transformed. Right back to the place where they became saved, where they had their sins forgiven, where their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. And that is so instructive. When we're having issues, when we're having problems, it's probably because we've migrated away from the gospel. We've moved away from the, the very thing that has saved us. And so he brings them back to the gospel. This is very helpful for all of us in our lives personally, but also in instructing others who have lost their way or are struggling or having difficulties. Bring them back to the gospel. He reminds them. He says, this gospel which I preach to you, which you received and in which you stand. So that's how it works. The preaching of the gospel, when met with one who receives the preaching of the gospel, will be how one stands or be the basis upon which one lives their life. This is a stable life because it's stable in Christ. It's based on what Christ has done for us, not what we do for Him. It's based on His love and His forgiveness, not on our works and our efforts. And so He brings them back to that. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember that you are to stand on those principles of grace and the work of Jesus on the cross because He loved you so much. Come back to that. He says in verse 2 that that gospel is which also you are saved. So how else can one be saved? Are there other methods of salvation or other ways one can be right with God? And clearly he says, no, there's one way that one can be right with God. One way that one can be saved. Isn't it interesting, the description of what happens when one receives the gospel? The description is that they're saved. That suggests that one was in peril, one was in danger, one was in a position that they could do nothing about. 
one couldn't get out of that predicament. And it was, it was sin. And so we are saved by the blood of Jesus from our sin. And now because we are saved from our sin, now we are to walk and live in that same understanding of grace and forgiveness that we are literally new creations in Christ. We're not that old person anymore, but we're new people now. We have a new home. We have a new relationship with God, a new relationship to the world as ambassadors of the world or to the world, as pilgrims going to our home. So just in these few verses, we learn so much about how we can right the ship, how we can prevent ourselves from drifting away, or if we have drifted away, how we can come back. This gospel, verse 2, by which you are saved, he says, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, speaking of the importance to continue in the things of God. In verse 3, he says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. In other words, Paul is saying, we're all the same. I received the gospel and became a new creation in Christ. And I preached that same gospel to you and you received the gospel and became a new creation in Christ. Now we're brothers and sisters in Christ because of what Christ has done. And so he's putting everybody in the same category. As saved. And he says, This gospel which I received is this. Here's the gospel Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. Why does he say that? He says that because the gospel is historical, the gospel is rooted in the word of God, but also rooted in reality. So it's not just being made up by Paul here. It's according to scriptures, and that's so important to understand, that what we believe is a belief that is rooted in the history of man that can be historically investigated archaeologically investigated, statistic, statistically investigated, prophetically investigated. It's according to scriptures. That means that we can look at scriptures and see this seamless plan of God being worked out from the beginning of man. We can see that the evidence and the result. We can see that God has made it known that he is sovereign over all things and that he is outside of time, space, and matter. That what we have written for us is what we can have confidence in and trust in. And it's also interesting that there was no New Testament at this time. So what Paul is saying is that what I've preached to you is primarily rooted in the books from Genesis to Malachi. He's saying that there are scriptures, many scriptures from Genesis to Malachi that have explained and said What's going to happen that have prophesied hundreds and thousands of years before these things happened? And they happened just exactly according to Scripture. So that means that we should be able to see evidence. We should 
be able to investigate the things that were said in the Old Testament. And, and one of those things is that Christ died. That the Messiah would die, which seems very unusual. That God would come into the world and die. And yet, we have scriptures. For example, in Isaiah 53, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Speaking of Jesus, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So you can read Isaiah 53. You can read Psalm 22. You can look at Genesis 22, the story of uh, Isaac being sacrificed by Abraham. And you, you, can, you can see that the Old Testament predicted this. We can look back and see, oh yeah, that's right. In Daniel chapter 9, it talks about the Messiah being cut off. And we start to put these things together and we realize, wow, this is amazing. This just didn't happen when Paul was on the scene or the disciples were on the scene. This happened not only in eternity past, if you will, but it happened from the book of Genesis. It happened in Genesis 3.15 where, where the fall of man occurred and God began to explain this plan of redemption as he said that Satan will bruise God's heel, but God will crush his head. We have the uh, analogies or the pictures, if you will, of as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. So the Son of Man will be lifted up. So we have these pictures. We have the pictures of the sacrifice of the lambs in the Old Testament. What does that all mean? It's all a picture of the Messiah that would come and die. So this is what, what Paul was saying, that, that I preached to you this scripture, and when I preached to you this scripture, I was preaching that Christ died, and he did it according to scripture. That's not the whole gospel, though. In verse 4, it says, And he was buried... And then he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And so we have these scriptures also in the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 32, 39, which says, I kill and I make alive. We have 1 Samuel 2, 6, which says, Yahweh kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he brings up. We have Job 19, 25, and 26 that says, But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. In the end, he will stand upon the earth. After my skin is destroyed, then in my flesh, I shall see God. He had no idea what he was writing about. But it was the Holy Spirit writing these things through these people. If you read the book of Job through, it doesn't seem like this verse fits. You read, and, and then all of a sudden this verse pops up. See, they didn't have a good understanding of the afterlife in the Old Testament, but you have these scriptures that are written by the Holy Spirit through men, and they had no idea what they meant. How about, about Isaiah 25, 7 and 8? He has swallowed up death forever and will wipe away tears off all faces. How about Isaiah 26, 19? Your dead shall live, my dead bodies shall arise. And how about this one, Hosea 6, 2? 
After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up. And we will live before him. And so it's all there. And not only that, Jesus himself, before his death, he would tell his disciples who didn't understand and couldn't believe it. And he would tell them, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to raise again. And he would tell them that. And so Paul's writing that and he's saying, look, these things are all prophesied in the Old Testament. The gospel, the death of the Savior, the burial of the dead Savior, and the resurrection of the dead Savior. He goes on to say, in verse 5, this Christ who rose again, he was seen. That's a, a key word. You might want to circle that. He was seen by Cephas. That's Peter. That's his Aramaic name. So he was seen by Peter, and he was seen by the twelve. After that, he was, what, seen by over 500 brethren at one time, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep or died. So these are all ways that you and I understand what truth is. This is evidence that's given. This is how juries will take things presented to them to see and weigh these things out. What he's doing is saying that Paul personally, that his salvation personally and the salvation of the disciples, that it, it's rooted in evidence. Do you see that? It's rooted in eyewitness testimonies also. Not only prophecies, but he's saying there are over 500 people who, who saw this who saw him alive. He was dead, and then they saw him alive. So that would be pretty convincing, wouldn't it? If you take all that evidence together. So this wasn't some sort of sham or parlor trick or some religious guru who found some gold tablets in the woods and said, this is what you should believe. Any of that that doesn't accord to Scripture is false. And this eyewitness account of the resurrected Jesus, so after Jesus died and rose again, then he went around. And it's very, very important to see that when Paul was writing this, many of those 500 people that saw him alive, they're still alive. So they're living witnesses at the time of Paul's writing this. In verse 7, he said, after that, he was seen by James, probably the James who was the half-brother of Jesus, who was the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. He was seen by him. And by all the apostles, verse 8. And last of all, he was seen by me as one born out of due time. The apostle Paul says that I missed the boat. I came a little later than the original 12. I met Jesus a little after that on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9. And I encountered him personally. And he's saying in regards to that, that I'm a little different than those original apostles who spent time with Jesus during his ministry, who saw his miracles, heard his preaching, saw him die, saw him buried, saw him resurrected, and then spoke with him soon after that. In verse 9 he says, For I am the least of all the apostles, 
who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, the, the disciples, the twelve, so we preach and so you believed. Paul, is he recognizes that he wasn't part of the the group, those original 12, it, it kind of seems like he's a little bummed out about that. And in a sense, he, he felt like a second-class apostle. And then to further his pain, he was literally killing Christians, imprisoning Christians, dragging Christians out of their homes, to arrest them and kill them. He was a Pharisee. As we go through the Gospels, you continually hear about the Pharisees. And you think, man, those, those guys are so messed up. Those guys are so bad. They're so legalistic. They're complicit in selling out Jesus and denying him when they should have known. But there were Pharisees that got saved. Paul was one of them. And Paul realizes that even though he did those things, even though he wasn't part of the original, he understands it is by grace that he is what he is. So he's recognizing that God has a role for him even though he may think he might have been dis discounted. But God had a role in even his sin, in even his life before Christ. And God had used his life before he came to know Christ in a personal way. He used all those things in Paul's ministry. So that means for all of us, we are what we are by the grace of God. We've come to Christ the way we came to Christ, by the grace of God. And God has a plan for our life. He has a plan, and it's important, you notice what Paul said, that now we recognize our identity is in Him. I am what I am by the grace of God. My identity is in Him, and now we live according to that purpose. We live according to the plan that he has for us. We live as responsible stewards, responsible caretakers of what God has given us. So the question is, how are we taking care of what God has given us? How responsible are we being with the responsibilities that God has given us? And the great thing is, he says, it's only by the grace of God that I do that. In other words, he's saying, it's not by my might and by my power and by my hard work even. He's saying all of that is by the grace of God. So God gives us all the grace to do what he's called us to do. And we are all called to do and be something unique and individual to us, but yet it's part of the overall tapestry of God's plan for the church. In verse 12, he says, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, right? So that's part of the gospel, right? He's been raised from the dead according to what? According to the scriptures. So that's part of the gospel. 
That's essential. That's not optional. That Christ has been raised from the dead. So if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there's the problem. There were some people saying one of two things. One, there's no afterlife. The Sadducees, part of the religious Jews in Jerusalem, they were well known for denying any life after the grave. The moment we take our last breath here, they're saying we do not exist anymore. That was their theology. But then in Corinth, there was a pagan teaching in Greek mythology and what was being taught there in the, in the area that they're in, that when the body dies, the spirit still lives, but not the body or not with the body. So it's a, only a spiritual uh, eternity, uh, a, a spiritual resurrection. So that body that goes in the grave stays in the grave and the spirit goes and they looked at the body as sort of a prison for the spirit. So he's dealing with that. And he's saying, well, if that's what you believe, then you can't believe the gospel. Because the gospel is that Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again. But here's what's important. Not just his spirit, his whole body. His body was not in the tomb. But get this, it wasn't the same body. It was the same body, but it was a glorified body. He gets into that in a minute. In verse 13, he says, But if there's no resurrection of the dead, if there's no afterlife, if there's nothing else, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. So you see, it's the, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection is a, an essential doctrine of Christianity. It's not an optional doctrine. He's saying that you cannot be saved if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ because that is the gospel and that is essential. He says in verse 15, he says, Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is what? futile so what is what is your faith then what is faith a lot of people talk about faith right i have faith i believe but he's saying if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection that faith is empty but what are the the broader implications of all other religions who not, do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're, they're all false. And look what he says. He says, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's the whole issue. Do you guys see that? That's huge. That's why there can't be another way to go to heaven. That's why good works will not get us to heaven. That's why all religions are not just all the same if we're sincere in our belief. Because there is nothing else that could get rid of our sins except for the gospel. And someone might say, well, yeah, I sin, but I'm good too. And that's like putting lipstick on a pig. You can dress your sinfulness up as much as you want, 
But you need to not be a pig. I need to not be a pig. I need to change. I need to be something different. But right there will solve so many issues. If you will just, and you're witnessing, take people right to that verse and help them to understand that what separates a person from God and what condemns a person to hell for eternity is their sin. Sin is the problem, and there's only one answer to that, and that's very clear. Verse 18, it says, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, a, a euphemism for dying, those believers who died, they have perished. If Christ hasn't risen, then those believers who died, then they've just perished. There's nothing else. In verse 19, he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Do you, do you see their failure to understand the resurrection? And by the way, there are just some in their midst that did not believe in the bodily resurrection. Because some were genuine, genuinely saved. But there, there were some, there was like a false teaching going around. And Paul makes a very important point for us to understand that if, if Christianity is only a standard of life for this world, if it's only a, an approach to have a more sane life, have a more balanced life, if, if it's only to do better in this life, if that's it, then boy, you're going to be the most miserable person in the world. And this was a part of the problem of the Corinthians, is they didn't have an eternal perspective. They didn't have the proper understanding that this world is not our home. They didn't understand that they are not going to have all their satisfaction and fulfillment in this world. They didn't understand that this life that we have in this world is to live for Christ and to die is gain. If they didn't understand that, like many people today, if, if you don't have an eternal perspective of the temporary nature of this life, what do you do? Well, you live to get it all here. You live for now. You don't want to miss out on anything. So you want to get everything you can in this world. But if you realize that it's not here, you realize that there is an eternity awaiting for you. And in that eternity is where you will find everything that you are looking for. And in this life, you will find everything in Christ. But in this world, you will have tribulation. And so he tells them, emphasizes, you have to understand Jesus rose bodily and that means something. It means something for your life now. And it means something for your life in the future but live with that perspective. So in verse 20, he says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Amen? So that's the reality. This is what happened. He has risen from the dead. So I don't know how you came in here tonight, but I just want to tell you, Christ is risen from the dead. And that should mean something to you. That should mean something. When you go out those doors at the end, Christ is risen from the dead. Well, what does it mean? Well, let's take a look. He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. So all of our confidence on that day, you know you have a day, right? Everybody has a day. The Bible says there's a appointed man wants to die and then comes judgment. We all have a day. We all have a day. We don't know when it is where we will stand before God. We all have a day where we will not exist in this world anymore. 
And the confidence that you will have on that day is what he is saying here. That Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits. What does that mean? He is the first in order of many to come after. So what Jesus did in his resurrection, when he rose from the dead, and as he rose from the dead, he rose in a glorified body. That was just the beginning. So that should mean something to us. That should mean that we can put all of our confidence of our eternity based on what Jesus showed us in the resurrection. Because he was just the first one of many who would come after him. Who would be those many who come after them? The people that he talked about in the first verse. Those who have received the gospel of Jesus Christ. And upon that reception of Jesus Christ, their sins have been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So this is our confidence. This is what we will stake our claim on. We'll stake our claim on Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead, being the first fruits, and we will come after him. In verse 21, he says, For since by man came death, who's that? Adam, the fall of man. Sin entered into the world in Genesis 3 through Adam. He says, in contrast to that, verse 21, by man, another man, also came the resurrection of the dead. That's Jesus. For as in Adam all die. Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. So here's the deal. We are either in Adam or we're in Christ. When we're born from our mother's womb, we're all in Adam, every one of us. But by faith in Jesus Christ, John chapter 3 tells us we are born again. We're born spiritually. And when we're born spiritually, we're in Christ. So if we're in Adam only, we're in our sin. And our sin separates us from God and will separate us from God for all eternity. That's why we need to be in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away and all things have been made new by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ and the word of our testimony. And so we're either in Adam or in Christ, in sin or in forgiveness. If we're in Christ, verse 22 says, we'll be made alive. Verse 23 says, but each one in his own order. So there's an order here. What do you mean, order? He says about that order in verse 23, Christ first, after Christ, those who are Christ's at his coming. His coming. So at the time that this was being written, Jesus had already come. So what is Paul referring to? He's talking about his second coming. So at his second coming, he's saying something will happen. And then in verse 24, he says, Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. 
for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, the Father, who put all things under him that God may be all in all. So what is that all about? So he's saying there's going to be an order to how things work. The order is Christ was first. He already did his thing. But what's happening now is he's looking forward to a time where Jesus comes back again. That's the millennial kingdom. That's still future. And at that time, he'll put all the enemies under his feet. Satan will be subdued. This means that Satan is active in this world now. This means that Satan is behind the evil and the fallenness and all the things that are going on in the world, that this is not the way God intended it, and he has a plan to restore it. And the restoration process is such that he is working now to bring everything under his control. And that will happen at the Millennial Kingdom. The millennial kingdom starts with the return of Jesus to the earth. So verse 29 says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? So he's not saying that Baptism for the dead is legitimate. What he's saying is there are pagans who baptize people for the dead in a way where if someone died, someone who's alive can be baptized for the person that's already dead. That's a pagan practice. But he's saying, well, what sense does that make if you don't even believe that there's a resurrection? Again, making the point about that. In verse 30, he says, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Paul is saying, why would I go through this if there's no resurrection? Why would I subject myself to beatings and torturings and imprisonments and persecutions if there's no resurrections? What does that mean? That means it is because of the resurrection that he was willing to go through the things that he went through because he knew that the things that he went through were temporary and were leading to eternity. He knew that the things that he went through were for other people to also join him in eternity. And so he was willing to suffer temporarily to be comforted eternally. He was willing short-term wise to, to go through difficulty and hardship because he knew eternity was coming. And so you see the practical implications of understanding the resurrection is to understand that this life is but a vapor. And it's meant for us to serve Jesus Christ. That's what our life means. Life on earth for a believer is to serve Jesus Christ. To live as Christ, to die as gain. And Paul is trying to drive that point home. In verse 31, he says, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I die daily. The contrast between living for oneself who doesn't have an eternal perspective, someone who does just does their own thing, lives according to their desires for pleasure and gain and want. He's saying, 
To contrast that, I die daily to myself and my self-will. And I like that he said that because it is a daily process, isn't it? I need to die secondly, every second. So it was a a process. So if, if you're ever frustrated with your walk or you ever think, man, I'm just not what I'm supposed to be, where I think I should be, well, understand it's just a daily walk. It's a daily dying. That's a good description of the Christian life. Daily dying to self over and over again. In verse 32, he says, If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead don't rise? Let us eat, drink, Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's, there's no point to do what you're doing right now. You're wasting your time if Christ has not risen from the dead. All of this is not good if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You might as well be filling your stomach with a bag of burgers at Brahms. You might as well fill up at the bars and go out and live and drink and party because if you don't believe in the resurrection, this is it. But if you do believe in the resurrection, but do you see where hedonism comes from? Do you see why many people live in a way that they're trying to satisfy and gratify their flesh as much as they can. But at the same time, if you're a believer, you find that the true satisfaction comes from the Spirit and not from the flesh. But also the perspective of eternity is what drives us to Christ and not to the world. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Possibly, evil company had come into the church at Corinth teaching to live for yourself and don't worry about eternal things. And he says, that sort of company that you're entertaining, they're corrupting you. So here's what you need to do. In verse 34, he says, awake to righteousness. That's God's way. God's way is not the way of sin. If you're living in the way of sin as a believer, then you're not awake. You're asleep. Awake to righteousness. Awake to eternity. Awake to the goodness of God. Awake to the bigger picture. Awake to the fact that you've been saved from your sin. Not to live back in your sin. And do not sin, he says. For some do not have the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. So you know, there there are people that say they're Christians. Because at some point, they prayed to receive Christ. But they weren't sincere. They just wanted to make sure that they wouldn't go to hell. They were covering their bases but didn't live for Christ. And they're thinking, they're deceiving themselves and thinking that, well, I said a prayer, so I'm good and I'm fine. And Paul says, don't deceive yourself. He says, a true believer is awake to righteousness. Yes, we sin. Yes, we blow it, but we repent. And we continue on the path to Jesus. So verse 35, he says, but someone will say, here's here's another question. So how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? And the answer is, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. 
And what you sow, so it's a farming analogy. And he's saying that something happens when our bodies that we're living in, when they die. Something is made alive, and it is not made alive until these bodies die. Verse 37, he says, And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or something, or some other grain. So, what goes in the grave or in the ground or in cremation or whatever, for the believer, whatever goes in, it doesn't come out that way. It's like a, an acorn. So an acorn, if properly put in the soil, something should come from that acorn. What comes out of the acorn? An oak tree. It doesn't look like the acorn. But it is the acorn. But the acorn goes in the ground, it dies, and it comes to form something else. In verse 38, he says, with that analogy, but God gives it a body as he pleases. And to each seed, its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another animals, flesh of animals, another fish, and another birds, all these different bodies of things, they are fit for their environment. And then in verse 40 says, there are also celestial bodies, that means heavenly bodies. And there are terrestrial bodies. That means earthly bodies like we have now. But the glory of the celestial or heavenly one and the glory of the terrestrial, the earthly one, is another. So two different things. Right now we're using our bodies to interact with the world. We have our five senses which help us interact with the things of the world our bodies are made for this world so as we begin to understand as Paul develops this idea it gets pretty exciting in verse 41 he says there is one glory of the sun another glory of the moon another glory of the stars for one star differs from another star in glory just talking about all the differences of these things that God has created verse 42 so also is the resurrection of the dead so now he brings all those analogies home to our bodies the resurrection of the dead the body that is sown in corruption is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and it is raised in power. That's our glorified body. So the first part of those statements is our body now. So if you're a workout fanatic, just realize there's diminishing returns. You can work out as much as you want, but it's all going south. But when these bodies finally fail completely and die, on the other end is our glorified bodies. Verse 44, he says, It is sown a natural body. It is raised up a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. He's not talking about just a spirit. He's talking about a spiritual body. That's important. Verse 45, And so it is written, The first Adam became a living being. 
the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. That's what we're going through now. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. That's our glorified body. That's the whole point. He's saying, look, your body should tell you this world is temporary, failing, falling, getting weaker, is in desperation. But although our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. And if you don't like what's going on in your body and you're having trouble waking up in the morning and your exercising is getting harder and life in your body is, is a struggle, take heart. You are going to have a new body. And it's going to be your body. But it's going to be glorified, sinless, energetic, good-looking, vibrant, no struggle, no tiredness, no backaches, no headaches, no tummy aches, forever. So just hold on. Just hold on. Verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Huh? We're not all going to die? That's what he's saying. We're not all going to die. What's going to happen? In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your Victory. This is the conquest of the resurrection. And he's pointing to one other thing that's going to happen. And it's called the rapture. There are going to be those on earth when Jesus comes back in the air for the church that they will be raptured up into the heavens and their bodies will be immediately transformed. But 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, and 18 also gives us a description of the rapture. And it tells us that the dead in Christ will rise first. So say you died yesterday, and you're in heaven. You don't have your glorified body yet. We're not exactly sure what that is, but it seems like you're in a, a spiritual condition at that moment until you get your glorified body and that happens at the rapture the dead in Christ will rise first and that's when they'll get their glorified bodies but those who are alive will be caught up so if you're alive when the rapture happens you'll immediately get your glorified body at that time and that's where the final blow of sin will be conquered and that final blow of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So verse 56, 
The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what should we do with this whole chapter? Verse 58, so therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So that's the whole practical application. We're going to have glorified bodies. We're going to be with Jesus forever in eternity. We know that because Jesus was the first fruit and we're coming after him. So, hey, look, you know how to live your life on earth? You live it steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And you do that with an eye, a continual eye on heaven. I can't wait. Can't wait for my glorified body. Can't wait to be face to face with Jesus. Can't wait for no more tears, no more heartache, no more struggle, no more difficulty. And although my loved ones and friends that have gone before me, one just recently, I'm sad, but I envy them. Because I long to be with Jesus too. But in the meantime, may our life count for eternity here and now. The motive, the ultimate motive is eternity. Live our life now with eternity in view. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the love of Christ which passes knowledge. We pray now for the Holy Spirit to fill us, to overflowing, to empower us, to be all that you've called us to be. Help us to walk worthy of the calling that you've put upon us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good job, everybody. You made it. God bless you. And uh, Lord willing, we'll see you tomorrow night or Sunday.